Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Undying Light listeners. I am your host, Pastor Alex, and we are back at it once again with another fresh episode on the Lutheran and Reformed Theology series. And this is, again, a continuation of uh, where we've been. And to give a quick summary, we started with the uh, history to Augsburg. We looked at the confession that the Lutheran Reformers had written then we went through the Book of Concord, providing some historical uh, information along the way. Then we finished the Book of Concord and then went right into a series on the sacraments, spending 10 weeks on baptism and another nine weeks on the Lord's Supper. And now here we are looking at the big differences between the Lutheran and Reformed faith. Now, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, these are not exhaustive episodes. I'm not going to you know, unpack every finite little detail because I intend to do that very little by little throughout the you know history of this show. And so the future of the show will be pointing it to uh, the differences and similarities between the Lutheran and Reformed faith. So there will be a lot of that coming on the Tuesday episodes. Uh, but for this very moment, we are looking at them uh, just at a high-level view, talking about some of the major differences and going forward from there. As I had mentioned last week, we will be doing an episode on the uses of the law that will be much more extensive, um, and we will, you know, unpack that at a deeper analysis at a later time. Maybe probably after we get done with this little series, I haven't quite des- decided what I want to go with to next, but we will uh, continue uh, unpacking Lutheran theology and explaining it because I find that it, there's a lot of convoluted or inflated information out there. Uh, there's a hundred different sources. And everybody has their, you know, their leg in a pot somewhere trying to um, make themselves as the only legit source. And I don't want to be that type of person. Obviously, I want you to go out and read and study and research for yourself. And that's why I'm, I, you know, I, I do kind of a higher level view because I want to just talk about the topics and present my view, but also allow it to be encouraging for you to go and, and examine your own. And 
I know there are great shows out there that do deeper dives into particular doctrinal pieces, and that's wonderful. But if you come to this show, you know that that's not what we do here. We are uh, taking the complexities of Scripture and making them simple. And so the purpose of this series is to talk about the the big differences between the Lutheran and Reformed faith and hopes that we can articulate properly uh, either side. And, and to do so, I'm using the book Between Wittenberg and Geneva. It's written by uh, Robert Cobb and Carl Truman, and it's the conversation between Lutheran and Reformed theology. So it helps to um, draw in that and understand the major differences. And it's a wonderful book. As I mentioned the last two weeks, we're not going word by word through it. We're just reading a few um, quick paragraphs or sentences to then expound and move on to the next portion of the topic. So uh, this week we're going to look at the person and work of Christ, and we will see a lot of similarities, and yet we will still see some differences between these two camps of faith. So at the very center of the Christian faith stands this figure who is Jesus Christ. The question of his identity is the most important question that any Christian, in fact, any human being in the history of time can address. The Orthodox Christian belief is that he is God manifest in the flesh and the very incarnation of the God of Israel is audacious in its claims and superstitious in its implications. And the church from its very inception in the book of Acts has focused its beliefs, its piety, and its practices on him. The basic understanding of who Christ is is hammered out in the early church. The councils of Nicaea in 325 and Constantinople in 381 established the perimeters for discussion of this person in relationship to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The Council of Chalcedon in 451 set the framework for understanding how the divine nature and human nature of the incarnation should be understood. So, Nevertheless, even though we, we see the hammering out of who Christ is in the early church, there is still a significant difference and some contention between the Lutheran Reformed faiths that continues even through this day. And as I've mentioned previously, uh, there seems to be a lot of misunderstanding of the Lutheran position. And and I think a lot of that is uh, ch- uh, ch- championed by the ELCA and their gravitational l- drive away from, you know, Orthodox Christianity. And, I you know, if we talk about Orthodoxy, we're talking about a biblical understanding, a right biblical understanding. Now, there are the Eastern Orthodox and all that. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about orthodoxy Christianity, we're talking about the fundamental basis to the Christian faith. What did the apostles teach? What did the early church fathers teach? And so on. And so when we get to that, we must understand that there is contention between the Lutheran and Reformed faith because both believe in their own orthodoxic view that they are the correct ones at interpreting Scripture. So in 1528, Martin Luther issues his Confession of the Lord's Supper in which he engaged in the criticism of his understanding of the Christ's presence in uh, in and under and with the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. He concluded his work with a simple confession of his faith outlined according to the Apostles' Creed as a summary of biblical teaching. Now, one big thing for the Lutheran faith is the the reliance upon the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And when we partake in communion in my church, we recite the Nicene Creed. On other Sundays, we recite the Apostles' Creed. 
And these are fundamentally the uh, proclamation of what we believe. Making this statement of faith is the basis to the Christian view, and that is how we view Christ. It is affirmed it affirmed his belief that the second person of the Godhead in the Son alone became a true human being conceived by the Holy Spirit without human cooperation. So to dig into more of how Luther views his Christology, we look at the hyperstatic union. And this is something that Luther points all of his readers back to the ancient councils, particularly the Chalcedian in 451, when it it comes to the understanding of his explanation that divine and human natures of Christ are so united in one person who is both second person of the Trinity and Jesus of Nazareth, the hyperstatic union. He understood that in the union, although each nature retains its own integrity and the characteristics of one nature never become the possession of each other. They do nevertheless share these characteristics. This is also uh, in Latin communicado endomodium to deposit any separation of the two natures which also remain distinct destroys the unity of the person of god man and therefore undermines the proclamation of salvation through him luther goes on to write this he says we must believe that christ is over all things not only according to the deity but also according to the humanity thus all creatures are subject and subject subjugated to christ the human being as god he creates all things, but as human being, he creates nothing, and yet all are subject to him. Thus, Christ is our God and our Lord. Although the two natures are distinct, there is one person, so that all Christ does suffers God has certainly done and suffered, even though only one nature is encountered in a given action. This view guided Luther's proclamation to the end of his life. In 1537, he treats John 1 from the pulpit. God himself took on his this poor, feeble, and corrupt human nature. The dear fathers, I say, were amazed at the divine majesty, assumed every aspect of this bag of worms, our human nature, except sin and guiltiness of death. He ate, drank, slept, woke, etc., but he was never born in sin as we were. Luther continues to write in Witten, to a Wittenberg congregation. He says this, The same word of God, which became human, Mary breastfed and carried in her arms as any other mother does her child. He came to human beings, lived and dwelt among them. Thus, it is with no spirit, but a true human being. Taking the form of a servant, as St. Paul writes in Philippians 2.7, being born of human likeness with regard to seeing, hearing, speaking, eating, drinking, sleeping, and walking, so that all who saw him and heard him were constrained to confess that the, that uh, confess and say that he is a true nature human being. He goes on to paraphrase as John's he dwelt among us. The evangel the evangelist is saying that Christ, in contrast to Gabriel, who quickly disappeared after giving Mary the news of her impending pregnancy, remained with us according to his human nature, which was inseparably united in divine nature since his incarnation. And I, I want to add a little something to this because we, we get so boggled down with the hyperstatic union saying, you know, uh, one of the biggest things between uh, the Reformed and, and uh, Lutheran faith is with Calvin, there's the statement that the finite is incapable of the infinite. And, and I, I, I think I paraphrased it slightly, but basically what it's saying is that the humanity of man is, 
is incapable of achieving anything that is of God, the infinite. And in all of that framework, they reject the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. But I want to I want to look at something post-resurrection with with Christ. And and I want to see, okay, if Christ is still human, which he when he goes to his disciples, he stands there and Timothy comes and touches him in the flesh and then makes the proclamation, my Lord, my God. So if he can appear because the doors were locked, and if he just magically appears in front of his disciples in the flesh, don't you think that as the son of God, he has the power to do as he pleases with his flesh? Therefore, if he can present himself just magically in front of his disciples for all of them to physically touch him, then goes on to do other miracles post-resurrection, making the you know, proclamation that he is God and he has overcome death before ascending to heaven. If he can do all that, then why can't he be present in the bread and wine? Why can't he still be bodily present and to, to a, an exorbitant amount of mystery that we can't explain? Why can't the text do what the text says? Why do we have to change the language to to fit some sort of logical philosophical explanation? And that's that to me is where my biggest uh, disagreement with the Reformed faith comes in is how they have changed the text to move away from uh, Luther's view that is means is. Zwingli goes on to you know go to one far extreme. Calvin tries to find commonality in the middle, but yet strays more towards the Zwingli application of the Lord's Supper. So I, I just wanted to bring that up because I, I had this conversation with some people and I thought, boy, that really, you know, it really sounds like there's much more to the body of Christ than what we have led on to believe because we try to ignore some of the texts that he does with himself. For instance, you know, even pre, pre-death and resurrection, he walks on the waters. If he's God in in our flesh, we certainly cannot walk on the water, but he is God and man at the same time. And therefore, those attributes bleed into each other. And if he's God, then he's walking on the water because he has control over the water. He has divine authority over the elements that he has created. They are his. They obey his command. They obey his word. And so why can't he do something that's miraculous, like be present in the bread and wine when we come to the supper? So when we get to the you know understanding of Christology uh, for, for the Lutheran faith, it points us all the way back to the, to, the, to the ancient church, to the creeds, to the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Those are all used to understand not only the nature of Christ, but the triune nature of, God, of the Godhead that we serve. And so we, we go back and we deal with that as our fundamental basis. So there's not a lot of um, major developments in that construct, um, but I do want to dig into a little bit here between the Christologies of Luther and Zwingli. A significant presuppositional gulf divides Luther's uh, Okenheimist-shaped belief that God works comfortably within his creation and with selected elements of its realist position of others, such as your work Zwingli. Zwingli's engagement with uh, Palantic and Neopalantic writings reinforced his realistic training, 
which laid perimeters for his understanding of the personal hyperstatic union of divine and human natures of the person of Christ. Luther insists that the two natures retain their characteristics and do not take possession of the characteristics in their own nature, but he did believe that the second person of the Trinity became a human being named Jesus Christ, and that same Jesus of Nazareth was God, in the Word, in human flesh. The Wittenberg Reformer held that the hyperstatic union of Christ's two natures bound them so tightly together in, this, in his person that neither nature exists or acts alone. The two remain forever distinct for Luther's doctrine of creation demands a sharp distinction between the creator and all that he has made, but the union of the two natures, that distinct never leads to separation. So each nature, as I had said earlier, has its own purpose and presence essentially within Christ. They, they are demonstrated in various aspects. When he walked on the water, that was the nature of God, the attributes of God being displayed fully. They don't, they're never intermingled and in, in the nature of God becomes the nature of man and the nature of man becomes the nature of God. They are, in, they are connected, inseparable. However, they are very distinct in their purposes. So for the Lutherans, and, and I would assume most reformers would agree with this position, that the two natures of Christ would be uh, determined based upon whatever situation is being presented when Jesus walked and when he ate and when he slept. Those were natures of a human being displayed fully. When he did you know, the miracles, the healings and all that, those were the divine natures being demonstrated for man. And we see that throughout the text where Jesus has healed or forgiven sin or done those things in a demonstration to show that he, in fact, is God in the flesh. Luther does not find his convictions regarding the communication of the attributes to only be of use in supporting his case for the true presence of Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper. He also found the concept of his argument against the doctrine of the celestial flesh of Christ as advanced by Caspar Schweckenfield, in a disposition drafted in 1540, Luther began with the axiom, these things that are attributed to the human nature being may rightly be asserted with respect to God. And on the other hand, those things that are attributed to God may rightly be asserted with respect to the human being. Adding the provisional on which Melanchthon also insisted, these things are not valid in the abstract, that is about divinity or humanity in general, but only in the concrete case of the person of Christ. They reject Schweckenfield's contention that Christ brought his flesh with him from heaven and did not receive it as a normal human flesh from his mother Mary. In the disposition, Luther affirms that in Christ there is a divine nature and a human nature, and those two natures are in one person, so that no other thing is conjoined, and nevertheless the humanity is not the divinity, nor is the divinity the humanity, nor does the distinction hinder anything, but rather conforms the unity." So there's a lot that Luther uh, goes on to write. And again, I, I really want to stress that if you're interested in how Luther engages this, you know, we can obviously do some deeper dives and we will in time because, you know, there's just so much that I cannot cram in a 35 minute show. And I, and I try to hit the high levels and I try to hit the high points and make the distinctions known 
but I, I do say there are there is so much more to the complexities behind the Lutheran view of Christology, and they are rooted in the in the ancient creeds. So if you're you know interested, go and read those and just read them, study them, and understand that this is where Luther draws much of his understanding on the nature of Christ. So for time constraints, we will uh, part take or move away from the position of Luther and move on to the Reformed tradition. Uh, the Reform, the Reformation was a multifaceted phenomenon, and at the heart lay the revised understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ and its significance for salvation for the church. The practical displacement of the Mass was the central point of Christian devotion, and its replacement by the preached word was a distinct cor- corollary of the emphasis of God's promise being fulfilled in his son in his once and all once for all death on Calvary and made available by its proclamation and reception by faith. A new understanding of Christ's work lay at the heart of the magisterial Protestant project. On this, Luther and Reformed were all agreed. While the most famous differences between the Lutheran and Reformed is that on the Lord's Supper, that difference is, is itself rooted in significant differences over Christology. Indeed, the formal point of rupture at Marburg may have been the understanding of the words of the Eucharistic institution, this is my body and this is my blood. But the interpretation of these words depended on a large extent of prior Christological commitments. Specifically, the difference lies in the different understandings that Lutheran and Reformed uh, have of the communication of attributes. Yet there is much more to Christology than uh, than that for both sides, and we will dig into what the Christological foundation is for the Lutheran view. Uh, it's a divine decision to save humanity in the light of the fall of Adam into sin. This incarnation is made only necessary in light of this. Many later Reformed theologians came to discuss the distinction uh, in terms that they would be called the covenant of redemption, This is the idea that God the Father and God the Son entered into a covenant with each other in in eternity, whereby the Son would accept the role of mediator and be appointed as the second and last Adam, the federal head of all those the Father would give him. As this terminology became a commonplace only after about 1645, however, the idea of the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son does not have confessional status in either the German or Dutch Reformed churches that subscribe to the three forms of unity or the Presbyterian churches that subscribe to the Westminster standards. The idea of a covenant of redemption is not universally accepted by Reformed theologians, but remains a matter of interconfessional discussion. Within this framework, the Reformed typically used an argument with an Anselmic structure to argue the Incarnation, thereby trying to both uh, tying together both the person and work of Christ. Here is uh, the Heidenberg Catechism, questions 12 through 15. Question 12. Since then, by the religious judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. How may we escape this punishment and again be received in favor? Answer, God wills that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must take, we must make, make full satisfaction of that justice either by ourselves or by another, Romans 8, 3 through 4. Question 13, can we ourselves make this satisfaction? Answer, certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our guilt. Question 14, can any mere creature make a satisfaction for us? 
Answer, none. For first, God must not punish any other creature for the sin in which man committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and redeem others from it. Question 15. What kind of mediator and redeemer, then, must we seek? Answer, one who is true and a righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also a true God. This is not, of course, pure Anselm. Anselm's thinking was predicted primarily on the notion of God's honor and secondary in God's justice. And it was clearly crouched in the concepts of the medieval federal feudal society. Further, Anselm's Christ needed to obey the law to fulfill his own obligation as a human being to God. This then qualifies him to die as a kind of work of subrogation for others. We might therefore say that Anselm, the real significance of the incarnation, was that the instrumental was that it was instrumental into the death of Christ. As with the Apostles' Creed, there is a sense in which the details of the incarnate life of Christ do not seem to have great theological significance. So the Catholic framework on this is interesting. While the Reformed, like the Lutherans, sought to make Scripture alone the norming norm of their faith, they must also they were also conscious of the importance of the Church in historical creedal statements for the formation of the document. Thus, the matter of Christology, they sought to operate within the broad categories established in the ancient church of thinking of both God as Trinity and Jesus Christ as God incarnate. Central was such the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, uh, Chalcedonian Council in 451. Uh, later developments followed through these in the uh, Christological Diotheism as the Third Council of Constantinople convenes in 681. While the Reformed would regard none of these councils as, a, as in principle infallible, the assumption has always been the burden of proof lies with those who seek to break the council's basic teaching. On the negative side, this commitment of Catholic and economical Trinitarianism and, Christian, and Christological also means that perceived Christological deviations are typically categorized using tax, taxonomy and patriastic heresies. So there's then they list a whole bunch of uh, fair, uh, heresies here. But here's what the Westminster Confession states here. It says, The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, becoming very and eternal God of one substance and equal to the Father, did, when the fullness of time was has come, take upon his, uh, him's man, him man's nature with all essential properties and common informalities, therefore yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy, Holy Spirit, in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that the two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person of God, the very man, yet one Christ, and the only mediator between God and man. The two, the two distinct natures in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. That is the Nicene Chalcedonian Orthodoxy and is typical the reformed Christological position. So then they go on to do this communication of the attributes. And this is a bit, another big distinction because as mentioned earlier, this is where most of the Christological differences come into play is how the Lutherans and the reformers differ on the communication of the attributes. So as noted, uh, the central division between the Lutherans 
and the Reformed on the Lord's Supper comes into this question on the two natures of Christ. In brief, the Lutheran doctrine of the real presence of the whole of the whole Christ in, with, and under the Eucharist elements assumes that Christ's body is not sparsely limited in the manner of typically associated with the human embodiment. This, in turn, rests on the notion that certain properties of Christ's deity are communicated directly to his human nature. At this point, the Reformed theology operates with a number of axioms. First, it desires to take seriously the Chalcedonian point that the natures are not to be commingled in such a way as to produce a third nature that is neither human nor divine, but an algorithm of the two. Uh, second, it holds the principle that the finite cannot comprehend or contain the, the infinite. That's what we stated earlier. Uh, this idea is expressed in the classical reform theology with the Latin maximum, uh, finitum non cap, uh, capsix infinity. I don't know if I hit that Latin correctly. I probably didn't, so I don't speak Latin. You all know that. Uh, Christologically, this is used to indicate the finite of all humanity, including the humanity of Christ himself, and therefore the fact that it was incapable of receiving divine attributes, such as omnipresence and omniscience, the so-called incommunicable attributes. This in turn underlay the concept of the Lutherans polemically dismissed as the so-called extra-Calvinisticum. This was the idea that the Logos was not fully contained within the humanity of Christ, but while truly united in the person of the mediator, continued to exist beyond the physical limits of the flesh. Clearly, both of these points are central importance to the different understandings of the Lord's Supper held by Lutherans and Reformers, to the point that the fact of the exegesis of the words of institution are connected to the assumptions of Christology. Because the Lord's Supper was the central point of division between the Lutherans and the Reformed, Uh, The matter of Christology formed a central point of history of dogmatic developments within the two communions. The increasingly acronyms of technical debate between Lutherans and Reformed in the later 16th and 17th centuries led to an elaborate discussion of the nature of communication of properties. With the Lutherans developing a particularly technical taxonomy to deal with the issue, in comparison, the Reformed offered a relatively simple approach. What is, the, what is crucial to the understanding uh, that is the debate of the Lord's Supper and its foundation to debate about Christology, with the discussion and meaning of the words in the institution playing, back, playing out against the background of radically different understandings of the nature of the Incarnation. So, as the Lutheran tradition goes on, and I've stated this a number of times, uh, especially just with Melanchthon after the death of Luther, the, the, the Lutherans tend to... Um, fall away from the core teaching of Luther. And then they start to kind of follow in, in a slight pattern to how the reform move that being conveying such a logical or philosophical explanation. Now that doesn't, that doesn't touch all Lutheran theologians throughout time, but the big core tend to move that way. And then those individuals have now developed into the progressive ELCA. Whereas the Missouri Senate and most LCMC churches that I'm a part of, uh, Wells churches and, and other senates around the world, if you're confessional Lutheran, you point back to the Book of Concord and you and then you go to what Luther actually teaches on these particular topics. Whereas Luther tries to make things as simple as possible, later Lutheran theologians tend to conflate with you know some sort of complexity. 
And sometimes we see that as, um, you know, the, the, the major differences between the two camps, the Reformed and Lutheran. Lutherans try not to philosophically explain everything or logically explain everything, whereas the, uh, the Reformed tend to have more of an explanation. That's why they have systematic theologies and volumes of systematic theologies. In fact, right now, uh, there's a big push. I think it's going to be four volumes, and they're about they're uh, a number of pages long, if I want to say under a thousand each, uh, of the Reformed systematic theologies, and they're touching base on all these major things. They're good reads if you're in the Reformed camp, but for the Lutherans, we just don't we don't get too complex like that. That is, you know, we we want to go to what the text says and preach the text, and and yes, I I get that the Reformed do that as well, but then they try and go to an extra step, in my opinion, and try to uh, logically connect dots that don't always make sense. And and I go back to the nature of Christ after the resurrection. If he is confined bodily to the normal human embodiment, then he can't just make his body appear and disappear at will. If, if he's confined to the normal construct of the human nature, he would have had to go and knock on the door of the apostles and ask to be let in. Instead, he just appears in the room. So how can the the um, the, the finite be incom, incom, uh, incapable of dealing with the infinite? It just doesn't make sense when you look at text in its entirety. So to wrap out the Lutheran and Reformed views here on Christology, again, not an exhaustive study, but uh, they tend to have actually some shared views here on the nature of Christ, uh, the threefold office is generally what they called, uh, and it's the Christ as prophet, Christ as priest, and Christ as king. And we would assert, assert similarities in all of those natures, not too much that we would actually differ on either of them. Uh, we might differ on just a few minor uh, insignificant pieces, but we won't get into those right now. Uh, Christology is the locus about which the most disagreement between Lutheran and Reformed come into play, primarily in its ways in which uh, connects to the heated debates of the Lord's Supper and the meaning of the words of institution. This is both understandable. The Lord's Supper is an important aspect of the Christian faith and practice, also unfortunate given the fact that many key points of Christology, there is common ground between both traditions. The Reformed, like the Lutherans, understand Christ's office as mediator, to be multifaceted and ongoing. The incarnation manifests God's merciful grace towards the fallen world. Christ points continuously to both holiness and the love of God. On the cross, he crushes the power of sin and evil. And by his death, he inaugurates the kingdom in which Christians already live. The Reformed also understand that the full consummation of the kingdom lies in the future and that suffering and contradiction uh, and even invisibility are to characterize the Christian life in the present age. Christ is the perfect Savior, and the Christian faith cannot be confident and can be confident precisely because He is God manifest in the flesh, God for us. So that wraps this chapter. Again, it's most of these are about thirty some pages long. Um, when dealing with it being about 15 or 18 pages to each uh, side of the argument. And uh, we're going to look at the election and the bondage of the will uh, next week. So election and bondage of the will. Uh, that will, again, be another uh, almost, yeah, 30 pages it looks like. So we'll try and, and work through that content quickly. 
But I want to make sure that you understand when dealing with these, you know, I came from a Calvinistic position, but I would be the first to tell you that I probably didn't know the extensiveness of the reformed position because I was basically just told what to say and what to think. And I read a few books and that's what, you know, especially by the modern preachers, that's really what it is. It's just a regurgitation of what they've been taught over the centuries. And as I've explored the Lutheran faith more, I find myself turning back to the early church fathers, the apostolic, uh, uh, apostles, the apostolic teaching, the councils, and looking at what did the early church formation point to? And that's what Luther does. And I'm not saying that the reform don't, I'm just saying that when I was in the reform camp, that was never the emphasis to go to. Yes, they go to scripture, but they, they don't necessarily go to what the apostles would teach then into the first and second, third centuries. They do in some cases and they don't in others. Uh, and, and I find that to be, you know, interesting because I, you know, had a conversation with somebody the other day and, uh, this individual told me that none of the early church fathers ever taught about infant baptism, which is a complete lie with no, you know, with no fundamental truth behind it. And these people in the reform camp, they don't, they, they haven't taken that time to, to research and, and examine this. And even still, like I like, uh, Nick Hedman's, uh, Christ's, uh, power of Christ. I forget the name of the books. It's four books on the history of the church. And they, he deals with the first few centuries of the church and he gives a very, um, narrowed view of the early church fathers surrounding infant baptism. In fact, he'll try to find quotes that would seemingly be contradictorial to their position, uh, because he's advocating for a creedal baptismal confession. And, and I think that is probably one of the few, pieces that I would have a massive amount of disagreement with him. And because if we, you know, I went through a whole list of uh, early church fathers and gave the dates and times and the writings that they made the statements in. And we had a whole episode dedicated to it. In fact, I think there's a couple episodes dedicated to it. And we, we examined that. And so, you know, there's, there's the, it's where we point ourselves back to in the church. So anyway, uh, I can rant and rave about all this stuff forever, but I want to make it very clear that, you know, I'm not trying to badger on the reform camp. I have a lot of respect for a lot of brothers and sisters there, and I love all of them deeply, but I do want to address there is differences in theology between us and, and, uh, you know, the reformed and the Lutherans. And so I want to hopefully assert some of those significant differences when, uh, working through these topics. So, Stay tuned. We'll get into a topic that we probably won't have too much uh, disagreements on next week. We'll actually find a lot of common grounds between election and bondage of the will. There will be a few pieces that we'll discuss that are a little bit different, um, and those are pretty easy to work through. So until next week, ladies and gentlemen, have a great week. God bless. We'll see you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.